1: A feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. Chris Parrish is the Director of Global Conservation for the Peregrine Fund. He's also the co-founder of the North American Non-Lead Partnership. Yes, non-lead bullets. Super controversial topic. And I wanted to pick his brain about it because I saw Chris on CBS Morning News talking about the California condor and hunters on the or Kaibab in Northern Arizona really making a difference. And what was so cool about that interview was it showed on a national platform that hunters cared, that hunters were interested in wildlife conservation. This is an amazing, hard-hitting, fast-paced conversation. And after it, you're going to be a big fan of Chris Parrish. Chris, where are you in Arizona, in California? You're in that area, right? Oh, man, I got it. Yeah, I
2: stay a a ways away from California these days, but I did... (laughs) I did, come, I did come from there, but um, Bakersfield, is in, if anybody knows Bakersfield, uh, we kind of have the relationship with California that Texas does with the U.S.
1: Mm, interesting. That's a very good analogy. Yeah, yeah. Very I'm, good analogy. I,
2: I live in analogies. Um, yeah, don't, my brain works that way. But I'm in northern Arizona, so I'm up at 7,000 feet just south of Flagstaff, Arizona.
1: I have uh, been through that area. I absolutely love it. It was with a past ex-girlfriend that I was trying to woo back into my life and uh, did not work because, and and thankfully so, because I married the woman of my dreams and now I have two beautiful young boys that we are raising to be, they're currently savages. Yeah. Um, but are we all? We can... Well, <laughs> that is true. Again, it is very true. Yeah. I feel like this 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 conversation is gonna be full of truths. I hope um, so.
2: It'd be true to true to me, and when it resonates with other people, it's uh reinforcing.
1: Well, Chris Parish, uh please introduce yourself. Yeah, I'm I'm Chris Parish. I'm uh yeah, I guess our
2: <laughs> the way it came together is uh you something struck out in what I said, and something that went public that I'm the redneck biologist. I am a redneck biologist through and through. Love and it. I work for the Peregrine Fund, we're a uh, worldwide uh, raptor conservation organization, and uh, we're founded by hunters, by falconers. Um, so to be in contact, amazing. Yeah, yeah.
1: And you know what I love about falconers, and we, I, I reached out to a lady. Uh, you may actually know her. Um, Shit, what is Lauren's last name? It'll come to me. But she was on 60 Minutes. She was the first woman falconer to go into Mongolia and Uh do a golden eagle and the whole kitten caboodle. And um, I I reached out to her because I wanted her to be on Blood Origins. And I said, are you a hunter? She was like, I am, but I prefer to hunt with a bird. Oh, there you go. (laughs) And I was like, holy smokes. Like how tribal, ancestral, and how close to mother nature can you get without, you know, how, what does an anti say to that, right? What does an auntie say to us hunting with what a bird actually is supposed to do when she hunts?
2: Well, I know what many of them will say, and many of them will say that that's even more barbaric than uh, you know squeezing the life. How could they say that? I, I, How could they say that? You know, they're they're um, they're either out of touch or so far beyond me that it's hard for me to be able to communicate with them. But but that's the cool thing about my job is because I'm a conservation biologist and a scientist, and I work with some endangered species. That I get an opportunity to engage with a lot of those folks that may not understand the value or the values in hunting, and the conservation that has come from hunting. And so I I often say, you know, I'm I'm talking a lot about non-lead and the benefits to non-lead in use in our hunting and angling. Um, But really, I tell people that we have as much, if not more, work to do with the non-hunting community than we do the hunters. Hunters and anglers I can talk to because I'm that in my core. And that's what I love about your, your podcast and your, your videos. And I mean, that really resonates with me. But to be able to effectively articulate that to the non-hunting community is key to our future in hunting
1: and key to them understanding their history and their background. See, what's going to happen now is I'm going to take this snippet, this 10-second snippet of Chris Parrish, and we're going to cut it, and we're going to morph it, and we're going to use it as the blood origins. There passion, you go. There speak. you go. Well, you have because to That's right. My... There's a whole reason why we did what we do, right? We, we, don't, we don't create content for hunters. Yes, hunters look at it. Hunters get something from it. Hunters learn how to communicate with it. Hunters learn about a deeper, resonating meaning. Maybe they don't want to think about it right now, but they will think about it in the future but it's built for non-hunters and we're building films for non-hunters because they 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 have a perception of who we are because of what is being the drivel that's being pushed out in social media and the people that are pushing you know rhetoric against us and unfortunately or no fortunately let me let me reiterate i think fortunately hunters have started to wake up and go oh shit we need to start creating our own content yes that gets pushed that's pushing now against this wave that we've been that's been hitting our shores for the last 15 years. Absolutely. You know, I wrote
2: some notes just just to, to put my own mind. I've been in Zoom meetings all flipping day, but I wrote down a few things that that really resonated with me while reading, uh, again, revisiting your podcast and looking back and seeing all these buddies of mine that I've met over the years that you've actually interviewed. Is like, how cool is this? But one of the things I wrote, and it, and it I think it's apropos, for both the hunters and non-hunters, this conversation we're having here. And you know what? Ignorance be damned. We have no excuse in this day and age to be ignorant. Right. And to have empathy, to understand where people are coming from, you have to listen. That's hard for me because I love to talk uh, and I love to share mm-hmm. you know, my experiences. But if you listen to them for just a moment, you can figure out where to go to implore them to listen to you. And then when you share your story, and it's perfectly tailored, you can change people's minds. You can move their needle. And that's, to me, what conservation and hunting heritage is all about.
1: Mm -hmm. 100%. Who
2: who, one of you, who is one of your buddies
1: that we've interviewed?
2: Oh, and I shouldn't I shouldn't say buddies, but just people that I've met over the years. Um, you know, Larry Weisen. Every every time I see, you know, Doctor Whitetail from a kid watching him on television to see him on the floor at Shot Show. Right. I mean, I right. I yeah, I run around like a, a little uh, Dixie dog behind that guy and talk to him whenever I get a chance. Uh, Braxton. Um, um,
1: oh geez, Braxton McCoy. Braxton, Do you know
2: Braxton at all? Braxton and I got into a really deep discussion at a backcountry oh, hunter. Braxton
1: doesn't talk. Braxton doesn't talk deep. Come on, man. Oh
2: man, Braxton and I hit it off, and we we communicate via email and on social media. I've yet to get out into the field with him, but uh, Braxton was mm-hmm. another one that I saw. Um, and then um, the other uh, the other young man that I've run into now down in Southern Arizona. I've stopped into, uh, um, uh, the camp where all the, the young people that, um, uh, uh, um, Randy Newberg invites out every year. And I'm down there. I have a, a sickness for the small game and the opportunities, the over counter over the counter, um, archery tags for the cows, deer down there. And so I always stop by and, and talk to Randy cause he is uncle Randy to us all. And, um, sure, the sure. young man from the public land, um, uh, Oh, what's his name? Um, I just saw his picture and I can't remember his name, but I've talked to him several years in a row now down there in Southern Arizona. And, uh, he does the, the, he's an advocate for public lands as well.
1: Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing when you start digging and scratching and, um, yeah, when I saw you, um, on the 60 minutes, by the way, congratulations on the CBS Sunday morning, CBS Sunday morning. That's right. CBS Sunday morning. Um, your, your infamy that comes with being on national network. Um, but I saw you and I heard you say that, you know, I'm just a redneck, I think you said redneck biologist hunter, yeah. something like that. It was, it was, I was like, man. And, and I didn't know much about the Peregrine Fund, right? I assumed, wrongfully so, ignorance, right? Because I didn't do my research. <laughs> that the Peregrine Fund was like an Audubon, Right that was very leftish, very, very leftish against, yeah. you know, hunting and whatnot. But the, the, the thing that you, you know, that you said when you started that, it's a, it was based on falconry um, and that inherently has hunting tied to it um, is, is amazing. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I think – um, go ahead. You have a thought. No, 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 you go
2: ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that, you know, I think that's why when I, I used to work for the Arizona Game and Fish Department And when I met the folks from the Peregrine Fund, it was a no-nonsense demeanor about the group that the way that they attacked issues and things, um, it it was strictly business and it was hard work and they were small and nimble. And of course, understanding how hard it is to work in the the, uh, times uh, of today where you have all the bureaucracies to navigate, all Mm -hmm. the special interest Mm -hmm. groups out there. And of course, you know you could say that Peregrine Fund is just another special interest group but but they attack difficult problems and they attack it with um I, the demeanor that that um that I think uh does something to my core, whereas you know you have something tough, you smack it in the forehead and see how it responds, and then you respond, and then you continue to move forward. That doesn't mean you're stupid, it doesn't mean you're you're brash it just means that hey this this lead issue. As it has become a political quagmire, if, yep. you, if you let that be the narrative that is controlled by the media, then yeah, you're in the quagmire. But the way we deal with it is say, hey, we've done some studies. And I often joke, and I did earlier today on another call, I said, look, you can engage with us and hear it straight from the horse's ass. Um, me. <laughs> because I've done some of these studies and 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 everybody can redo them and repeat them. You go shoot stuff and you x-ray it. And you see that, holy crap, there's some fragments in there. So that's a potential source for lead to be ingested by wildlife. It's really that simple. And when you share Mm -hmm. it in those simple terms, people are okay with it. But boy, if you come down from a top down, you know, I'm a PhD scientist and I'm going to do this and I did this and you should know better. It just doesn't work, man. You have to appeal to people where they are. And frankly, I'm more comfortable being the redneck biologist that I am. And, and that works. So,
1: well, let's step back because that's the, the, the topic we want to unpack today is this idea of lead, lead bullets, this transition to copper bullets and, and its environmental ramifications. You bet. You know, the, you've just mentioned the political quagmire. And for those that don't understand what the political quagmire is, I think you can sum it up very easily that and i've heard this you know we've got people inside of blood origins that uh have a position that are hey any cut to hunting is a cut to hunting right and so making it more difficult to access certain things like a copper bonded bullet oh that copper bonded bullet is actually you know it's five dollars more a box my perception would be like five dollars bucks what's five bucks in today's society his position would be five bucks is a lot to someone who doesn't have much yeah you know and it's another cut it's like another thing like that oh we have to get over this now oh we have to get over this now oh we have to get over this now that's the political quagmire so i'm not the expert here you are um how much did i miss in terms of the sort of broader
2: issue here you know, I don't think you you missed anything in identifying where people lie on this issue. Um, I will say this. The more we learn, the b- more capable we are of making better and informed decisions. The beauty about the non-lead partnership, which was what we ended that piece with CBS Sunday morning, we started it with the condor because we've learned so mm-hmm. much about the lead issue because we follow those birds on an individual basis so we can tell you what they died of if they die, because we have transmitters on them. So that's a lot of stuff. So let's
1: just back up for a second. Let's back up for a second. Explain the whole like Canadian condor. Set up the whole Canadian. CBS article okay. that led us. <laughs> oh, no. Shit. Sorry. Californian. <laughs> this is what you get. This is what you get with a South African. Uh, no you know. worries, man. No, anyway. No worries. So... so- the- Californian condor, the most iconic. Which, <laughs> there you go, right? Vulture species.
2: Yeah, uh, enter the quagmire. You just named it something called California, which has got a negative connotation to begin with. So that's what we're up against. That's, that's, that's how dominated we are by this media and, and all the BS out there. Anyway, you have the, the North America's largest flying land bird, the condor. And it's a scavenger. It's an obligate scavenger. So it only eats things that are already dead, unlike an opportunistic scavenger, like a bald or a golden eagle. Bald and golden eagles, bald more than goldens, do a lot of scavenging, especially in the winter months when food's harder to come by. So they have some opportunity to, to come across gut piles or the remains of animals that have been shot and left in the field. Let's say a coyote or something like that. Well, these species have the potential to ingest lead because the majority of the bullets we use are lead-based and depending on their composition and the speeds with which they travel, things like that, it determines how much fragmentation might occur. Mm -hmm. And that fragmentation lends to a potential. Here's what you won't hear in the media. No one will take the time and easily cut this part out. If we use lead-based ammunition or fishing tackle, there's a potential for poisoning, period. That is fact. There is a potential. Now, is that potential high enough that it warrants uh regulation changes or or things like that we don't get in that's not our business that's the business of the state wildlife agencies and they manage right. that based on science some of that science we produce so what we're doing is taking the information and our knowledge that hey standard bullets will fragment to some degree depending on how fast they're traveling how well they're constructed or what they're made of and where you hit an animal what distance you hit an animal there's so many variables you can get lost in the details but here's the bottom line. If a bullet fragments in an animal, domestic animals even, even if we put down a, 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 a uh, let's say I put down a horse and I'm out in the middle of the BLM in Northern Arizona and my horse goes down and I need to humanely put it down because it's sick or it's wounded, it's broken mm-hmm. a leg. Anytime a lead-based bullet is used to, to put an animal down or dispatch it or kill it or shoot it, however you want to call it. If the remains of that animal are left in the field, there's a potential that a scavenging animal, could be a predator or could be a scavenger, can eat that carcass and thereby ingest some lead. Now, it doesn't mean if they do ingest lead that they're going to die from it. It's just there's the possibility. Well, for an obligate scavenger like a vulture, where all of their diet comes from animals that they consume that are already dead, seasonally, because of our hunting practices, there's a lot more availability of gut piles come November, December, following the October, November uh, deer hunts. So the potential exposure exists there. It might be a hundred fragments. It might be 20 fragments. It might be 400 fragments in a gut pile from a single shot. So you first have to get over that first hurdle. And so most people, however, aren't familiar with how many fragments there are in a carcass because not everybody goes out and x-rays them. <laughs> but what we as hunters mm-hmm. are familiar with is how much of a, uh, of, of a bullet's original mass it retains. So we talk about weight retention as one of those variables mm-hmm. to evaluate the, the, how good the bullet was. And if you're lucky yep. enough to recover a bullet, and let's say it retained 90% of its mass or 60% of its mass, So you start out with 180 grain, um, 30-06, and you end up with uh, 110 grains. Well, where did the rest go? That's what's been Mm -hmm. answered by these studies where we radiograph and we x-ray these carcasses and these gut piles. And so that's how we've been able to quantify how many fragments then have the potential to be consumed by the parts that are left in the field. So that's kind of the the basis.
1: So so the fragments, let's, let's talk through some of the science of, and we can use some fancy terms right now, bioaccumulation, biomagnification. Let's talk through that because a lot of people would say, well, they're just fragments. Yeah, right? The, the, the vulture is going to ingest it. It's going to work its way through its digestive system and it should poop it out. Yep. What's the issue here? Exactly. It's all about the frequency and the magnitude of, you know,
2: we're going to use big words, which is not terribly big, but I'm always accused of that, which is funny. Think of me, the redneck, using big words. Anyway, the frequency and magnitude of exposures is the key. And each species, it's different. And that's why, you know, it's not across the board. If we ingest a piece of lead, the amount of time it stays in our system and the acidity of our gut biome that that it's being produced through, maybe it's less worrisome than it is with a vulture. Think about a vulture and the pH of their system. It's so much more acidic and it really has to be because they're dealing with things like botulism, right? They eat dead stuff out on the landscape and And bone. Yeah. To be able to digest bone, because a lot of people don't realize that because we've all studied in school, you have the owl pellet and you have these bones. You're like, oh, they don't digest bones. Actually, some birds specialize in digesting bones like Egyptian vultures anyway. Um, and when a female who has to mobilize calcium to produce an egg of, of a bird species, they actually eat more calcium because they break it down and can utilize it to make an egg. Well, there's an mm-hmm. interesting little side bit of to the body, to most vertebrate systems, lead and calcium are so close because they're both heavy metals that if there's lead and calcium in a, in a, in a vertebrate's system that lead can be stored well, where calcium should be and thereby not be able to be used to produce, to to uh, mobilize, to make an egg. And calcium is a major neurotransmitter. And so that's why we usually see paralysis in species that have ingested too much lead because it's stored mm-hmm. within those receptor sites so that the moment that uh, the the neural pathways have to communicate, they can't because there's lead there. And I know that was a big tangent there, but it explains why we see things like... You're scaring uh, people back to
1: the periodic table that they got away from <laughs> in high school.
2: Yeah, which odd, oddly enough, from when we all studied it, um, I assume in, in high school, if you look at it today, it's grown. We've discovered more elements. Yeah. Holy crap, that's yeah. a mind-blowing thing alone. Anyway, um, so when you talk about the effect that lead has on vertebrate species, you start talking about things like uh, visual acuity, or or for us, our ability to um to walk in the um tactile um oh what's the uh I'm not being very scientific now but anyway our ability to you know reach out and grab something or see yeah, something motor neuro function motor yeah neural function exactly and so that's what they see in eagles they see these eagles that have clenched feet and man i hate seeing it not because i just hate seeing wildlife hurting but some groups will use these these that dying eagle pictures and videos thinking that that's really going to drive hunters um, into doing, you know, what, what I also hear folks like that saying the right thing. It's like, whoa, whoa, wait a second. Let's, let's not go to right. And all that, let's just say that we have the potential to prevent exposure to lead of wildlife. Really for many, that's simple enough. And most hunters that when we were able to have a, a meaningful conversation, that's pretty straightforward like this, we just say, Hey, if you had the potential to, to eliminate the the possibility that wildlife might eat lead knowing what you know and believe about lead, would you consider it? Most hunters say yes, Mm -hmm. but it's so, Mm -hmm. um, man, the way, the way it's pitched by some groups who are fairly aggressive and not necessarily friends to hunters, it looks like propaganda. It looks like a Mm -hmm. ploy to eliminate or limit our ability to hunt. And I, I too hold, hold that, um, dear. And I'm very cautious of that, And I don't want that to be used against us. And that's why I think the best approach, and that's why we co-founded the North American non led Partnership, is to get the information out to the hunters so they can make their own decisions. And we rest in confidence that we have such a history of of, uh, conservation in hunting that I know that if hunters know the details, they usually do what's best for wildlife. And we're seeing it in every little program that we have.
1: So let me ask this, since you, you've, you've formed this non-lead partnership, you must have the science, you must have the information. So the first thing a hunter would say is, lead is, is, is more effective than a copper bullet. True or false? I
2: would say, I would argue that because um, are they more used to it because it's a tool they've used longer? Potentially,
1: yes. Well, what's the science say? The, Does science, the science says, say in, in ballistically, it, they work the same way. They have the same punching power. They
2: okay. So, define one thing first off. Punching power. How would you define punching power? We really have to get in the details here.
1: So, you're asking a South African who is probably the worst bullet ballistics individual you will ever <laughs> talk to. That's why I called it punching power. Yes. So I'm thinking kinetic energy downfield that's going to cause the you know, energy transfer into the body cavity that's going to cause trauma that's going to lead to death. Right, right. And see, we have to base our answer
2: and formulate our, our scientific studies to investigate based on what people's assumptions are. Some people still call it knockdown power. Well,
1: knockdown power.
2: Okay, so so let me and I think the the best way to think about challenging our assumptions is to say, what about a well placed single uh single uh plain broadhead through the lungs of a bull elk at twenty five yards? Did it have knockdown power? Is that what killed it? Mm-mm. Nope, no, it didn't. It what killed it was not the kinetic energy, but the disruption of tissues. Correct. primary tissues like both lobes of the lungs mm-hmm. and the resulting blood loss and blood loss of blood pressure and the shutting down of the CNS system by loss mm-hmm. of blood transferring through that, that body. Now, there are other ways that, that bullets kill, obviously. If you have a, a severe impact to the central nervous system, i.e. a spine or a headshot, yes, that can kill them before they lose the blood that would be necessary to kill them the other way. So do you see, and that's what I'm trying to explain here. And I'm not an expert either. Um, and you said that earlier. And I, I just, I, I have a lot of conversation and we've done a lot of science to investigate this. But when it comes to conveying that a copper bullet can, or a, a non-lead bullet, because right now copper is what's being used, but who's to say that there won't be something better that comes along. Um, right now, True. it's just copper, solid copper bullets are the, are the number one alternative. Um, And if you're comparing copper bullets to premium copper bullets to premium lead bullets, the cost is actually the same. So it depends. Again, the devil's in the details, man. If you compare a core lock to a partition, well, wait a second. They've both been on the market for a long, long time, but one is considered premium and one is considered like the economic uh, alternative, right? Because you can go buy, well, used to be able to buy core locks for 15, 17 bucks a box. Now it's like 38 to $58 a box because of the mm-hmm. pandemic and everything. But anyway, um, they are equally effective tools at harvesting game. As you begin to press the envelope for any bullet, whether it be lead or non lead, like with increased distance and therefore lower velocities, it doesn't matter what the bullet's made out of. They have different capabilities. So I will not tell you that, you know, past. Seven hundred yards that a that a a standard copper bullet of today and a standard lead bullet that that there's not a difference there there is, but technology and manufacturers are fixing that now they're now they're building bullets that will actually compete with the the lead bullets out to ranges where the velocities drop below eighteen hundred feet per second um so but again, the devil's in the details, I guarantee you. If you punch a hole through the lungs of any ungulate that we target and we hunt, I don't care what the bullet's made out of, that animal will die. Is it going to respond differently upon impact? You bet. Um, there are differences, in, and we'll get into some of the details, I'm sure, about you know a, a non-lead bullet like a copper bullet has to be longer because the density isn't as great. And so therefore, it's a little bit longer. That changes the relationship between the lands and grooves and the way that that bullet passes through there and the stability that it has out to certain ranges, but it doesn't mean it's not effective. It comes down to the same, a well-placed shot. Um, sorry, my daughter was, was leaving. Um, she's waving at me through the window in my uh, office, which used to be um, she and her sister's playhouse. So, <laughs> nice. I like it. Um, so, um, so a, a well-placed shot of a bullet of any type is gonna do its job. And the most important thing is to know your tools and know your capabilities mm-hmm. of using those tools. Yeah. Um and that what I think gets back to really the answer to your question is 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 why we have issues with it or we uh, is is that it's change. You know, we've used what we've used because it's what we've used and it's worked for so long that unless it's thought to be an improvement on our ability to do what we're setting out to do it's like I don't
1: know if I want that.
2: And I always talk about when I heard about isn't that
1: a, isn't that a isn't that a marketing issue?
2: Absolutely, and and if we marketed conservation like it were a product, we'd be a hell of a lot better off in this day and age. But as scientists, we suck at
1: marketing. Oh man, we're academics. Man. <laughs> we don't even think about stories. We we worry about peer-reviewed publications. Well, we don't worry about the outcome.
2: And I think that's what makes me a better conservation uh, hunting uh, conservation biologist than a scientist is that. Man, uh, if we talk enough and I share enough information, people will go away thinking about it at least. And that's the first step um, is thinking, you know, is it worthwhile changing what I'm doing to help, uh, you know, improve ecosystem health? And most hunters, uh, they, they come around to say, yeah, I do that. And you know what? It's not even about changing your bullet. That's not the only option. And when we say this, it makes some people crazy, especially those who think that a ban is the only solution. Pick up, pick up the caucus. Yeah. Yeah, you could just, you know, if I shoot a coyote out, out my back fence here um, and I have eagles around here, I can just go remove it. I've still interrupted that pathway. I've prevented potential lead exposure in those mm-hmm. eagles that are there mm-hmm. because I picked it up. That's something mm-hmm. we can do. And more important than that, with those hunters who have, one, either chosen to use non-lead or they've chosen to pick up their carcasses, I need those data. Because when I go to talk to a non-hunting or a less than favorable attitude towards hunting group, I want to be able to tell them and demonstrate to them, look at the conservation ethic demonstrated by these hunters. We have hunters on the Kaibab Plateau in Arizona because of Arizona Game and Fishes program to help in- increase the use of non-lead and decrease the threat of lead. We have hunters up there that are bagging up gut piles and carrying them out of the field on a third or fourth trip after they've recovered their deer because they want to help. And we
1: also... Yeah, so let's talk about that. Let's talk about that because you have an example, right? We've talked in the theoretical, but you have a honest to God example, Kaiba Plateau, Arizona, Northern Arizona, good hunting, right? Fantastic. Not dealing with... You're dealing with probably the best hunting in the world for elk, mule deer, right? Mule deer specifically, there on the Kayab. Mule deer specifically, right? Yeah, it's a trophy unit. Yeah. So you're not dealing with you're dealing with all sorts of hunters. You're dealing with hunters that have been putting in for thirty years, thirty five years to get that one tag, right? And then we Um, ask them, "Are non professionals?" (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And so. What has been the response? What are, are there people going, like, screw you, I'm not doing this. The res- I've been waiting 30 years. The
2: response to Arizona Game and Fish's program up there on the Kaibab is 87 to 89% annual average participation for over a decade. That's the response. Now, let that sink in a minute. And I talked to a lot of law enforcement agencies, you know, and I talked to other other wildlife management agencies across the US. Show me the statistics for laws. I think that that in in itself, in and of itself, even though it's a Is it a law? No, it's voluntary. That is the premise. That is the premise for the North American Non-LED Partnership. Share information, develop incentivized programs to encourage hunters and 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 help them help us by incentivizing it or um, just simply sharing the information, but we incentivize it as well because, you know, look in your mail, look in your mail, look in your email. Uh, The the currency of today is, Hey, if you take this survey, we'll, we'll thank you by giving you this uh, knife package and these uh, little sticky return labels or whatever. And now I'm really picking on one group, but I'm also a life member of that group too. So anyway, but we're using that. And, you know, we've taken criticism like um, the Peregrine Fund. We spend about $20,000 a year of, of do- dollars that are donated to us to do wildlife conservation for raptors. And we spend that money on incentive prizes, whether it be rifles, um, rifles, and, and um, uh, optics and things like that. We, we ante up and say, hunters that will participate with this program in Arizona and Utah. We will say, we'll put your name into a drawing. And in the early years, it was pretty damn good odds because we had a hard time in the beginning getting people to participate because they thought, like you'd said at the beginning of the podcast, that no, this is, uh, I, I, there's something fishy here and I'm not buying it. Mm-hmm. But now we have mm-hmm. 87% annual participation for over a decade. To me, that's a testament of the will of hunters to do right by conservation. And that allows us to maintain our conservation. And hunting heritage simultaneously, and I think that bodes best for
1: us in the future of hunting it's an amazing statistic it's an amazing statistic because it's voluntary you bet it's an, it's, a, it's an even more amazing statistic when you layer on the fact that it's not just local public land here down the street, it is the Kaibab it is the yeah. premier premier hunting area, and people have been waiting forever and you're gonna do everything in your, when you draw that tag, you want to have everything in your favor. You bet, you bet. So it's even- And I, and I think that- Yeah. Yeah, it's even more impressive, right? And, and I think the, the key thing that you said was this, is that there's two ways to, to solve the solution, to solve the problem. Yeah, <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Number one, switch. Number two, if you don't want to switch, all good. Just bring the stuff
2: out. Yep. Yep. And when people of the non-hunting mind tell me that hunters don't care, there's nothing that pisses me off more. I mean, that, in, that, that brings something up from my core. And I, yeah, it's all I can do not to say you, you, just, you just don't understand and you never will. Because I believe they too can come to understand. But they believe what they see. And what they see, because they're not, you know, my, I'm a kid who grew up watching like like Dr. Whitetail, you know, Larry Weiss and Sunday morning television. If I wasn't out in the field doing it, I was watching the people doing it. Well, these people didn't grow up watching that. They didn't grow up hunting and fishing and understanding and and appreciating and really celebrating that that's all of our heritage. Not just Mm -hmm. mine. It's theirs, too, because mm-hmm. two generations ago, hunting and angling meant a very different thing to the average person. Three generations ago, four generations ago, it was even uh, more of, of a part of our lives. Anyway, um, nothing pisses me off more. So when I say, have you ever hauled a gut pile out? Oh, no, I wouldn't even be. You I know, was like, okay, well, that's a pretty pretty big imposition on someone who's just mm-hmm. busted their hump to do everything it takes to actually harvest an animal, but then they're going to go back Mm -hmm. in there and get that gut pile. And you tell me hunters don't care. And then some Mm. will challenge and say, well, they're doing it because they might win a rifle. I was like, yeah, maybe they are. But if they didn't win a rifle, they still did a good thing for conservation either way. And the sale of that rifle, because we pay for the damn thing also goes into the taxes through Pittman Robertson that also can, Contributes to conservation. So actually, they've contributed twice. What have you done lately to support conservation? Oh, Oh, I could go
1: off the uh, deep end there. (laughs) I love your passion, Chris Parrish. You're a kindred soul, my friend. Yeah. Kindred soul. I appreciate Um, it. I love the fact also, I'll, I'll layer one more thing on here, is that on national news, very subtly, People saw hunters caring. Yes.
2: Yes, they did. Yes, sir. And they saw it linked to an endangered species recovery program. Mm-hmm. And you know what else I hope resonated to even the non-hunters is that only hunters will be responsible for solving that problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's if you're talking about lead poisoning, it is the hunters on the kaibab right there adjacent to the release site that are making the difference for condors. Now, some will say, but you still have lead poisoning. True enough. True. We haven't solved the problem, but we are well down that road to doing so. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's um, regulatory like it is in California, where there is a ban or it's voluntary in Arizona and Utah, like it is. We're still suffering from lead exposure in those species because we don't have across the board um, transition to non-lead or a, uh, you know, everybody hauling their carcasses out of there because still we run into people despite our decades of effort to engage with hunters, some people still don't know. Or worse yet, they think it's all a bunch of hogwash.
1: Right. Well, Chris Parrish, I know that you've changed a bunch of people's minds. Uh, at least you've, you've planted some seeds of maybe doubt or some thought. I hope so. Either or, right. Um, and uh, anytime you want to come back, anytime you have something that you want to you know, beat your chest about to say, look at the good job that we're doing as hunters, you just ring me up and uh, we'll have you back because I love it. Love it, love it, love it. Right on. Well,
2: we'll keep up the fight both for conservation and for hunting because they are one and the same.
1: Yes, sir. Well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening as always.